1967, President Lyndon Johnson put together a commission to study the causes of the urban riots that were rocking the nation. Headed by Illinois Governor Otto Kerner, it would be popularly known as the Kerner Commission. Johnson quickly lost interest in the commission when he began to get wind of their findings. Worried that Johnson might try to bury the report, the commission leaked text from the report to the LA Times before giving a copy to Johnson. Johnson was furious and would not acknowledge the commission's existence. The commission begins the summary of their report as such. The summer of 1967 again brought racial disorders to American cities, and with them, shock, fear, and bewilderment to the nation. The worst came during a two-week period in July, first in Newark, then in Detroit. Each set off a chain reaction in neighboring communities. On July 28, 1967, the President of the United States established this commission and directed us to answer three basic questions. What happened? Why did it happen? What can be done to prevent it from happening again? To respond to these questions, we have undertaken a broad range of studies and investigations. We have visited the riot cities. We have heard many witnesses. We have sought the counsel of experts across the country. This is our basic conclusion. Our nation is moving toward two societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal. Segregation and poverty have created in the racial ghetto a destructive environment totally unknown to most white Americans. What white Americans have never fully understood, but what the Negro can never forget, is that white society is deeply implicated in the ghetto. White institutions created it, white institutions maintain it, and white society condones it. It is time now to turn with all the purpose at our command to the major unfinished business of this nation. It is time to adopt strategies for action that will produce quick and visible progress. It is time to make good the promises of American democracy to all citizens, urban and rural, white and black, Spanish surname, American Indian, and every minority group. to Ending the Myth, the show where we talk American history so you don't have to read it. <laughs> I'm Brian. And I'm Munya. And we're going to do something a little different today. We're going to oh. go a, a little out of the ordinary. Take a, take okay. a little turn. Let's and, go. Uh, I like that. And we're going to actually discuss chapter 12 of Greg Grandin's what? book, <laughs> The End of the Myth. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! Ooh, only a mere four episodes ago did we mention that we were going to discuss this book, and here we are. 
We're giving we you time it. to read. I think like a lot of people's complaints about actually like, you know, doing like, you know, reading or following along is that it takes like it moves too fast. You know, it's like hard to do. And we are providing the people with a solution. We're giving you time. All right. So you should be grateful about that. You know, it only took <laughs> us 30 episodes to finally get to chapter 12 of the book. So, I mean, <laughs> you could say that. I mean, in a, in a real way, you could say that you're four times as elevated in your collective consciousness than if you just read the book. Yeah, I think the audiobook for uh, The End of the Myth is something like eight hours long, and the total audio of our show is like 30 hours at this yeah. point. <laughs> yeah, at this point, right? We got a lot to correct. <laughs> There's a lot to correct in here. Yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> well, well, Munya, Munya, and audience, before we get too excited, before we get too pumped and just jump straight into Grandin's argument, uh, let's go ahead and just bring our story up to date and explain how Martin Luther King went from the March on Washington to his Riverside speech in 1967. Yep, let's so, do it. As the black population of the United States began to congeal around a demand for equal rights and common dignity, the forces of disruption that had been honed on the periphery of American empire were brought home to be used against them. Along with the Bull Connors, the fire hoses and police dogs and the racist vigilante violence, there was also a more subtle program of surveillance and subversion being developed. Political scientist Robert Goldstein describes the FBI's early efforts to disrupt the NAACP. The FBI investigation of the NAACP, begun in 1941, continued until 1966. Although the FBI prepared massive reports on the NAACP, including information on the group's political and legislative plans, the Bureau never uncovered any evidence of subversive domination or sympathies. In 1957, the New York field office of the FBI prepared a 137-page report on NAACP activities during the previous year. Based on information supplied by 151 informants or confidential sources. From 1946 to 1960, the FBI used about 3,000 wiretaps and over 800 bugs and continued its practice of opening mail and using illegal entries to place bugs and obtain membership and financial records of dissident groups. By 1958, the FBI had opened a personal file on Martin Luther King, essentially declaring him a person of interest for future counterintelligence operations. Shortly after, the FBI began planning news stories in papers across the country, alleging the communist infiltration of King's Southern Christian Leadership Council, or SCLC. At home, just as abroad, allegations of communist infiltration were a first step toward more open forms of political repression. In 1962, Attorney General Robert Kennedy ordered the FBI to maintain 24-hour surveillance on King's home and all SCLC offices. When FBI agent William Sullivan was asked by the head of COINTELPRO operations, Charles Brennan, to write an internal report of the communist infiltration of the civil rights movement. In this report, Sullivan writes, quote, One top functionary of the Communist Party stated that Martin Luther King was considered by top functionaries of the CP as a true, genuine Marxist-Leninist from the top of his head to the tips of his toes and that King is following the Marxist-Leninist line. A week later, a memo to Alan Belmont, J. Edgar Hoover's personal assistant, Sullivan again pleaded, quote, Personally, I believe in the light of King's powerful demagogic speech yesterday, he stands head and shoulders over all other Negro leaders put together when it comes to influencing great masses of Negroes. 
we must mark him now, if we have not done so before, as the most dangerous Negro of the future in this nation from the standpoint of communism, the Negro, and national security. Although initially skeptical of Sullivan's dire warning, within a year, J. Edgar Hoover and the Bureau dramatically escalated their operations against King, as historians Ward Churchill and Jim Vanderwall describe. By 1964, King was not only firmly established as a preeminent civil rights leader, but was beginning to show signs of pursuing a more fundamental structural agenda of social change. Correspondingly, the Bureau's intent had crystallized into an unvarnished intervention into the domestic political process with the goal of bringing about King's replacement with someone acceptable to the FBI. That means employed in the attempt to accomplish the centered and continued effort to discredit King, maintaining a drumbeat of mass media distributed propaganda concerning his supposed communist influences and sexual proclivities, as well as the triggering of a spate of harassment by the Internal Revenue Service when the strategy failed to the extent that it was announced on October 14th of that year that King would receive a Nobel Peace Prize as a reward for his work in behalf of the rights of American blacks, the Bureau, exhibiting the certain sense of desperation by this juncture, dramatically escalated its efforts to neutralize him. It was at this point that the FBI began splicing together tapes of King's phone calls in order to blackmail him, eventually working up to a harassment campaign designed around the goal of forcing King to kill himself. The FBI was also monitoring those violent vigilante groups that sought to maintain segregation at all costs. Instead of blackmail and death threats, however, the FBI supplied members, advice, and quiet protection. The collusion between local police, the FBI, and racist groups to repress the civil rights movement is perhaps best exemplified by the career of Gary Rowe. Gary Rowe was a high-ranking Klan member, as well as an FBI informant in Birmingham from 1959 to 1965. In 1961, he facilitated the transfer of information on civil rights groups and their membership from the Sheriff's Red Squad to the KKK and the FBI by extension. Although this information led to many violent attacks, the FBI did nothing. In May of that same year, Rowe plotted with Birmingham Police Commissioner Bull Connor and the police chief Tom Cook, along with several other Klan leaders, to violently attack the Freedom Riders. The details of the Freedom Riders' itinerary had been provided to Connor by the FBI. According to Rowe's notes on the meeting, Cook suggested, quote, I don't give a damn if you beat them, bomb them, murder, or kill them. I don't give a shit. I don't want them in Alabama. Rowe and his Klansmen attacked the civil rights workers with pipes and baseball bats while the Birmingham police and the FBI watched, doing nothing. Again, the FBI refused to move on Cook, Connor, or their Klan associates. In 1963, Rowe participated in some part in the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church. Robert Chambliss, who was eventually put on trial for the bombing, insisted that while he had purchased the dynamite, he had given the dynamite to Gary Rowe, who then carried out the bombing. Police Chief Tom Cook testified on Rowe's behalf, and Chambliss was ultimately convicted. What role Rowe played in the bombing remains a mystery. The FBI was only able to rouse itself to action in 1965 when Rowe and three other Klansmen murdered a white civil rights organizer named Viola Luzzo. Luzzo had been well-connected through her marriage to a Teamster organizer in Detroit. 
The outrage over her murder reverberated through both the labor movement and the civil rights movement, and public anger forced the FBI to finally act. After the Klansmen were acquitted by an Alabama court, the Justice Department brought them up on civil rights charges using Roe as their key witness, landing the other three Klansmen with 10-year sentences. The FBI's actions in the Roe case were typical of its behavior during the 1960s, leading many to wonder whether the FBI was investigating the Klan with its network of informers or bolstering and building the Klan. The FBI's covert campaign to undermine the civil rights movement was paired with an overt propaganda campaign to shift public sympathy away from the black community. Southern states responded with their usual subtlety. In 1961, South Carolina once again raised the Confederate flag above its capital, followed by the rest of the southern states. Liberal efforts were only slightly more subtle. In 1965, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, an advisor to Lyndon Johnson in the Labor Department, released the Negro family, the case for national action. Moynihan began his report by warning his liberal audience that, quote, the most difficult fact for white Americans to understand is that the circumstances of the Negro American community in recent years has probably been getting worse, not better. It was a startling admission for a post-war America that treated economic progress as a natural right. Moynihan even admits that, quote, the racist virus in the American bloodstream still afflicts us, at least for another generation. But then he gets to the meat of the report. The fundamental problem, in which this is most clearly the case, is that of the family structure. The evidence, not final but powerfully persuasive, is that the Negro family in the urban ghettos is crumbling. Essentially, all the forces of history, capitalism and racism, and urban development were combined in this single unit of pure Americanism, the family. Moynihan went on to describe a tangle of pathologies that afflicted black families, focusing on the number of failed marriages and percentage of single mothers. Which, as a side note, the rates of single motherhood in the white community today are actually higher than they were for black families in the 1960s when the Moynihan Report was written. Hence the work of people like J.D. Vance and Charles Murray to explain away the poverty of the new white underclass through the lens of familial pathology. Moynihan declares that, quote, a fundamental fact of Negro American family life is the often reversed roles of husband and wife, warning that, quote, whereas the majority of white families are equalitarian, the largest percentage of Negro families are dominated by the wife. The matriarchal pattern of so many Negro families reinforces itself over the generations. This emasculation of men is then used to explain everything from difficulty in educational obtainment and difficulty in finding work to explanations for black juvenile delinquency. Through the alchemical powers of American intellectual culture, Moynihan was able to turn the structural problems of American capitalism into the personal problems of the black family. On August 11, 1965, Marquette Fry was pulled over by police in Watts on suspicion of drunk driving. Police beat Fry before arresting him. While the events were routine for South Central Los Angeles, the community, which in the words of historian Lerome Bennett, quote, had long regarded the policemen as the occupation troops of an alien and hostile government, was not going to take it anymore. Crowds began to gather, and infamous Los Angeles police chief Willie Parker sent in more police to confront them. 
helmeted police with batons were quickly forced to retreat as youth hurled rocks, bricks, and bottles at them. That night, all of Watts went up in the first great urban uprising of the 1960s. People were tired of conditions in the slums, of exploitative landlords and businesses, of being last hired and first fired, and of the urban renewal plans that put them in daily contact with the police. An uprising had taken place in Harlem in 1964 after an altercation between black high school students and a white building superintendent led to police murdering a 15-year-old boy. The uprising had been preceded by a rent strike organized by black Harlem tenants earlier that year. Organizers handed out flyers laying out the situation. Quote, The police department in Harlem is here to protect the slumlords, not the tenants. These facts clearly show why, one, when the slumlords are guilty of no heat, no water, and the rats biting our children, the police department does nothing. This goes on year in and year out. Two, when tenants are being robbed or when apartments are broken into, where are the police? Somewhere drunk? In some woman's apartment? In a garage asleep? Collecting graph and payoffs from prostitutes? Payoffs from number men or dope peddlers? But when it is time to illegally evict a tenant for a slumlord, the whole police department acts with great speed. The Watts uprising also followed on the foothills of the escalation of the war in Vietnam, a fact that was not lost on the participants. In 1965, the number of people drafted to meet the needs of the escalating invasion and occupation of Vietnam had doubled to 230,000. In 1996, it would nearly double again to 380,000. Exemptions have been carved out in the draft for the children of the rich through college deferments and of certain important middle-class constituencies through vital defense industry deferments. By their very nature, these exemptions guarantee that the poor, in particular poor black people, would make up a disproportionate amount of those drafted. For those defending American capitalism, the Watts Rebellion allowed them to play out their Vietnam War fantasies at home. By day two, Parker was telling the press that black people were launching, quote, Viet Cong-type raids on police and firemen. On the ground, the citizens of Watts tied the uprising to the harsh repression of an American state insistent on maintaining its racist order, shouting, This is for Bogalusa! This is for Selma! In Beverly Hills, there was a run on gun stores. But here, Lerone Bennett notes, unreality reigned for well-to-do blacks who were also seeking reassurance discovered that some gun stores were selling to white people only. California Governor Pat Brown was forced to cut short his trip to Europe, stating, quote, From here, it is awfully hard to direct a war. That's what this is. By day three, the uprising had spread into other L.A. neighborhoods. And even more disturbing for American capitalists, an uprising had broken out in Chicago. Bennett describes the situation in L.A., quote, Outmanned and outgunned, city and state officials declared Watts in a state of insurrection and called out the National Guard. The first of more than 13,000 National Guardsmen moved into the 45-square-mile area that night and started establishing a military perimeter. Machine gun emplacements were set up at intersections, roadblocks were established, and all cars entering or leaving the area were stopped and the occupants searched. Guardsmen later began a street-by-street -street sweep in an attempt to enforce an 8 p.m. to dawn curfew. It took six days for city officials and the National Guard to retake Watts, at which point 
Police Chief Parker proudly boasted to the press, quote, we're on top and they're on the bottom. The victory would be short-lived. In 1966, there were urban uprisings in 43 cities, including Chicago, Brooklyn, Atlanta, Philadelphia, and Cleveland. When Lyndon Johnson tried to convene a White House conference on civil rights to reaffirm the alliance between liberal Democrats, those on top, and responsible civil rights leader, or those on the bottom, both Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and the Congress on Racial Equality refused to go. Even more disturbing for the Johnson administration, Muhammad Ali, the world heavyweight champion, refused to serve one drafted. When asked by a reporter why he wouldn't join the military, Ali summed up the feeling of a growing number of people in America. My conscience won't let me go shoot my brother or some darker people or some poor hungry people in the mud for big powerful America and shoot them for what? They never call me nigger. They never lynch me. They never put no dogs on me. They never rob me of my nationality, rape and kill my mother and father. What am I going to shoot them for what? How can I go shoot them? Them little poor little black people, little babies and children and women. How can I shoot them poor people? I would just take me to jail. While speaking at an event co-sponsored by Martin Luther King and the SCLC in Mississippi, the fiery new leader of SNCC, Stokely Carmichael, captured the mood. The time for running has come to an end. You tell them white folk in Mississippi that all the scared N-words are dead. When King arrived in Mississippi to speak, the crowd had taken up a new slogan, Black Power. In 1967, there were uprisings in 159 cities. In Detroit, Lyndon Johnson invoked the Insurrection Act of 1807 to order a military occupation of the city. 8,000 Michigan National Guard members and nearly 5,000 paratroopers from the 101st and 82nd Airborne were sent into Detroit to retake the city from its own population. The diversion of airborne units from Vietnam to Detroit began to stoke elite fears that the U.S. military, currently bogged down in Vietnam, might be needed to fight a counterinsurgency war and occupation in the United States. This led to the first cracks in the unified front regarding the Vietnam War among foreign policy advisors, White House insiders, and the military brass since U.S. involvement began in the region in 1954. On April 4, 1967, Martin Luther King addressed a packed crowd at Manhattan's historic Riverside Church. Over the past two years, as I have moved to break the portrayal of my own silences and to speak from the burnings of my own heart, as I have called for radical departures from the destruction of Vietnam, many persons have questioned me about the wisdom of my path. At the heart of their concerns, this query has often loomed large and loud. Why are you speaking about the war, Dr. King? Why are you joining the voices of dissent? Peace and civil rights don't mix, they say. Aren't you hurting the cause of your people, they ask. And when I hear them, though I often understand the source of their concern, I am nevertheless greatly saddened. For such questions mean that the inquirers have not really known me, my commitment or my calling. Indeed, their questions suggest that they do not know the world in which they live. In the light of such tragic misunderstanding, 
I deem it of signal importance to try to state clearly, and I trust concisely, why I believe that the path from Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, the church in Montgomery, Alabama, where I began my pastorate, leads clearly to this sanctuary tonight. Since I am a preacher by calling, I suppose it is not surprising that I have seven major reasons for bringing Vietnam into the field of my moral vision. That is, at the outset, a very obvious and almost facile connection between the war in Vietnam and the struggle I and others have been waging in America. A few years ago, there was a shining moment in that struggle. It seemed as if there was a real promise of hope for the poor, both black and white, through the poverty program. There were experiments, hopes, new beginnings. Then came the build-up in Vietnam, and I watched this program broken and eviscerated, as if it were some idle political plaything of a society gone mad on war. And I knew that America would never invest the necessary funds or energies in rehabilitation of its poor, so long as adventures like Vietnam continue to draw men and skills and money like some demonic destructive suction tube. So I was increasingly compelled to see the war as an enemy of the poor and to attack it as such. Perhaps a more tragic recognition of reality took place and it became clear to me that the war was doing far more than devastating the hopes of the poor at home. It was sending their sons and their brothers and their husbands to fight and to die in extraordinarily high proportions relative to the rest of the population. We were taking the black young men who had been crippled by our society and sending them 8,000 miles to guarantee liberties in Southeast Asia which they had not found in southwest Georgia and East Holland. So we have been repeatedly faced with the cruel iron watching Negro and white boys on TV screens as they kill and die together for a nation that has been unable to seat them together in the same schools. So we watched them in brutal solidarity burning the huts of a poor village, but we realized that they would hardly live on the same block in Chicago. I could not be silent in the face of such cruel manipulation of the poor. My third reason moves to an even deeper level of awareness, for it grows out of my experience in the ghettos of the North over the last three years, especially the last three summers. As I have walked among the desperate, rejected, and angry young men, I have told them that Molotov cocktails and rifles would not solve their problems. I have tried to offer them my deepest compassion while maintaining my conviction that social change comes most meaningfully through nonviolent action. But they ask, and rightly so, what about Vietnam? 
They asked if our own nation wasn't using massive doses of violence to solve its problem, to bring about the changes it wanted. Their questions hit home, and I knew that I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed in the ghettos without having first spoken clearly to the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my own government. For the sake of those boys, for the sake of this government, for the sake of the hundreds of thousands trembling under our violence, I cannot be silent. Greg Grandin singles the speech out in his chapter on King as a turning point not only in King's life and politics, but potentially in the understanding of our nation's history. Writing, quote, In a way, King's speech was an answer to John Quincy Adams' 1836 denunciation of his Jacksonian colleagues, a call and response across history. Who would pay for America's frontier wars, Adams asked. The poor, King said. Would war, Adam asked, provide the social glue to bind together the motley compound that made up the U.S. population? Yes, said King, in brutal solidarity, but only so long as the killing continued. Is there not yet hatred enough? Adams asked. Have you not Indians enough to exterminate? The United States, King said, was the world's greatest purveyor of violence. This business of burning human beings with napalm was a symptom of a far deeper malady, a sickness at the heart of the Republic. And just as Adams watched the Jacksonians use perpetual war on the frontier to reverse his policy of progressive and unceasing internal improvement, King watched Vietnam derail the struggle for justice. Quote, It seemed as if there was a real promise of hope for the poor, both black and white. Through the poverty program, there were experiments, hopes, new beginnings. Then came the buildup in Vietnam, and he watched this program get broken and eviscerated as if it were some idle political plaything of a society gone mad on war. We are left, he said elsewhere, standing before the world glutted by our own barbarity. So before we move on, I just want to say King's Riverside speech is actually one of the great speeches in American history. And in our suggested reading section, we'll have both the transcript and a link to where you can listen to the whole audio, uh, which if you've never listened to is worth listening to. All right. Yeah, no, it's really good. But I think we should discuss kind of why Grandin singles out this moment and this con- these connections he's making uh, with the rest of the book. And I, th- I think the first thing is, he calls the chapter even the you know the demonic suction tube, and mm. what exactly does MLK mean when he calls Vietnam the great demonic suction tube? Vietnam in general, I think, was a really key part in Grandin's analysis on American history. It really feels like the crescendo, like we said, like everything was being connected. And when we talk about like the great demonic suction tube, right, um, that is usually like led to describe how war abroad really affects and has consequences uh, back home. You know, war in general, not just Vietnam, even though that's what was, you know, coming, but from what we saw with the Korean War, World War II, right, with the war in the Philippines. And now in the most like 
gruesome way possible where people are just getting drafted off the streets. A lot of like, you know, poor black people are like fighting in this endless pit of a war is that actually there is like parallels with like what's happening domestically and abroad. And it's usually what like happens abroad and some actually comes back home and like just reverberates off of each other. Right. So it's the, it, it is like the, the consequences of, you know, the war. And that's why Vietnam is like the poster child of that, I think, in King's speech. Yeah. And I mean, you know, King refers to the obvious things that funding that could have gone to poverty programs because the wars demand for more and more money as it escalates gets siphoned off to the war effort. Right. I mean, it's just like a bottomless pit. Right. It's just yeah. like the the amount of people that are used to fight this war could be used for something like of social good. You know, the amount of money that's being sucked into it can be used for you know, building housing for all or like even like ending poverty in the United States, right? Like it's it's using it as a device, not to say that capitalism would do that ever, right? But it's to say that like these are this is what the money it's not just like the money just doesn't go anywhere, right? It's not just like mm-hmm. it's getting held. It's actually going towards something, right? And like Vietnam is was a bottomless pit where their own people, their own intellectual capital getting murdered. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, in, in, in Vietnam, we're doing a lot of murdering onto other people in the global south. Right. Yeah. Um, like the money that could be going to schools and stuff. Right. Uh, is com- or it's just to people. Right. Something that's like, you know, socially positive is actually going into this war, too. And it's not something that was really concealed. And I think that that's why, you know, using that rhetorical device actually worked. Right. Whereas in the Korean War, right, it was almost like a. Americans would call it a forgotten war, you know, because it wasn't as out in the open as like Vietnam was. Right. And this is kind of where I think the symptoms of the civil rights movement and the Vietnam War were happening like at the same time. And those two things really, you know, merged together. And there was a lot of parallels. Why was there so much discontent in black communities while there was so much money to fund this war? Yeah, I mean, the demand, there's more demand forever on the street level from the general population to improve the lot of people in this country itself, right? To live up to the promises that would get stated to them over and over again in the platitudes of politicians and things like that. And, you know, it was pretty obvious where the money actually was being spent. Uh, To this day, I mean, you know, interestingly, this week, there was the video of, I guess, you know, revealing when we recorded this, but the video of the F-35 mm-hmm. slow motion crashing into, uh, you know, into the landing strip in Fort Worth. And of course, all the people joking be like, this is why we can't have health care. But the thing is, yeah, that's a big part of it, actually. Yeah, <laughs> like, like that, is, that, that is a part, you know, that we spent a trillion dollars on a plane that just slow motion crashes uh, <laughs> and only kills half the people that eject out of it. But yeah, I mean, that's the big issue. And to get back to a point you were making earlier, though, it's more than just the money. And I wanted to read this uh, excerpt from Grandin here in Chapter 12, where he says, King's dissent wasn't just a pure break with Cold War liberal consensus, which conditioned support for civil rights at home on backing anti-communism abroad. Rather, his protest entailed the refutation of an older, more primal premise to go beyond Vietnam didn't just mean splitting from the New Deal coalition by demanding an exit from Southeast Asia. It meant breaking with the devil's bargain that had tempted even Du Bois. The idea that social progress could be achieved in exchange for support for expansion and militarism abroad. For King well understood that while war made progress possible, it also threatened progress 
activating the backlashers, revanchists, and racists who run throughout U.S. history. For all that war, for all that war turns reform into a transactional arrangement, and for all that war worked as a safety valve. It also created the aggressive, security and order obsessed political culture that King criticized. And I think this is the other part that the money thing is easy to see, right? You know, uh, it, our our the defense budget in this country is absurd on its face, and all you have to do is show people the amounts, right? Yeah. But I think the thing that gets lost sometimes is this idea that when you spend this much on war, when you're at war all the time, you're also unleashing social forces in your society itself that are inherently reactionary and inherently backwards. And in the show, we've tried to highlight some of this, that racism gets worse during wartime. Yep. Right. You know, and arguably, uh, you know, compounds after yeah. wartime too right it doesn't just go away uh it, it's something that builds and gets developed and gets like trained um and then that will compound into the next war that you're at right so and then it like adds it's like new racism just dropped like every war <laughs> right <laughs> and i mean you know for listeners of our show who are on average uh in the 16 to 24 demographic but, yes but, you know um some of this happened a bit in some of our listeners' own lifetimes, though, with the, uh, you know, war on terror after 2001. You know, as somebody who has conscious memories of the pre-2001 period, well, there was certainly racism against Arab people or whatever. This was not a uh, number one issue on most people's docket, right? You know, no. yeah. when, you know, hearing racist comments or things like that, they were rarely, at least in my experience, directed at Arab people or Muslims or anything like that, but at the traditional targets of American racism, black people, Latinos, etc. Right. But 2001 really changed that on a dime. The the new war that we had gotten ourselves into this time against the entire world. Right. Uh, you know, really unleashed some racist forces that to see it happen in real time was extraordinary. It was surreal. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's, I think sometimes when people go back uh, and they're in history class, they talk about World War One and Liberty Cabbage and shit like that. And like, that's so fucking goofy. Uh, you, you know, I lived through it, man. It fucking happens. <laughs> like, yeah. like, you know, it happens all There's the time. videos. I mean, even like before, do, you could even see it happen in real time when 9-11 was happening, where you could like get people's live reactions in New York. And you could see immediately there were people who were just like, oh, yeah, no, it's time to like bomb these fucking Arabs. Like just like talk, mm -hmm. just speaking like that now. Right. And that's even before like, you know, the war uh, on Afghanistan and Iraq was declared or even like people didn't even know like who exactly did it. Right. But like just like that alone was just able to just harness this just intense, um, you know, Islamophobia and, you know, anti-Muslim uh, and just uh, hatred towards like Middle Eastern people that just was not really seen. And I mean, that obviously carries on like till this day, right? It's not like an old tradition in the U.S. for that type of racism to be there. Um, but it just got transferred. It was just like a next target. 
Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the interplay with the military and the sort of operations, uh, you know, the whole media, of course, got on the same beat instantly, you know, weird. Which is key. Um, I mean, it's yeah. like, yeah. But all, yeah, all got on the same beat that we were in a clash of civilizations against a horde that, you know, couldn't be reasoned with and had to be just defeated militarily. And I had a friend who was in the army who was telling me, who'd been uh, in Iraq for a little bit at the very beginning of the war, uh, driving convoys and told me that their commanding officer, when they showed up, right, and they're like, you know, discussing convoy duty and stuff like that, posed the question to them and, you know, pardon my language here, what do you do when there's a little Haji kid in the road and one of the, you know, soldiers in the group you know set ass stop <laughs> it's like do we stop <laughs> and apparently with just total disdain and scorn on his face the commanding officer yelled at them you run the little haji over right and the thing is is that the levels of dehumanization and racism that are required to fight the war that has to flow both ways right it flows into the theater of the war but flows back out into the you know, population of the country waging the war as well, right? Yeah. And these are, at their most basic level, antisocial forces, right? You know, yeah. these are not the kind of things that allow people to come together, that allow people to operate politically, uh, you know, for collective goods. And, you know, the forces being unleashed by war inherently destroy, as King is arguing here, a movement like the civil rights movement. You know, you yeah. can't be on the side of the war and for civil rights. Right. And I think like we talked about in episode 18 and 18.5, like for we were mostly talking about what happens to uh, the victims of a war. Right. People who, um, you know, were aggressed upon like in Indonesia and how that breaks down uh, social bonds. And it's like an extraordinary ask. Uh, to, you know, make of people to essentially say, hey, you need to like kill your neighbors and burn them alive, right? Or just pile up dead bodies, right? It's an extraordinary ass that required extraordinary um, tales and a belief system that sounds fucking crazy if you don't have the, if you're not in it, if you just kind of hear it as you are right now, but had to make sense then, right? In order to carry it out. And that's the same way I think for the aggressors too, which is like the Imperial Corps in the US and the people living there. You, In order to do such an extreme invasion, like the invasion of Iraq, right? Or doing like, you know, uh, the Vietnam War. Um, it's a requirement for people to buy into that too, which means that this racism has to be taught um, and bought into fully, really, by um, the people. Of course, Vietnam War was unpopular. It's not like they needed like a hundred percent like consensus on it, right? But it's something that, in order to justify like napalming a bunch of people uh, in uh, Vietnam and like, or you know, running kids over in Iraq, mm -hmm. right? Like that requires us to believe that they're not uh, people and that they're just a horde that needs to be crushed, like uh, like bugs, right? Uh, so, I mean, it's as an empire to carry out a war, uh, people, there needs to be some buy in with the media and uh, hence then the media selling that to people. And that's why the New York Times, like the Washington Post, uh, the Atlantic, especially, uh, were so aggressive in selling it, because uh, if they really didn't need, uh, you know, social buy in, um, 
they simply wouldn't, right? But yeah, I, yeah. it's like important if it was obvious for, like, on its face, they wouldn't need the media offensive, right? Yeah, and it was a very, very uh, strong offensive that still like didn't necessarily work because it was still a very popular anti-war movement, but it worked enough to the point where when you hear the word Arab, a lot of people would think terrorist. Uh, you know, like you, you would think of like Allahu Akbar as a as a term that means what you say when you before you like blow something up. Right. Like mm-hmm. uh, those things like suddenly came into the like American, like, you know, imagination. And um, once you have those things to have any social movement back home. Right. While uh, war is going on makes it just extremely difficult like the more like counter-revolutionary forces of a uh, domestic fight back home would be emboldened i think and get more jingoistic and you know compare the people who are doing the uprising back home which is another part king's saying is like you know when they're doing if there's an uprising um or a revolt uh they'll just compare them to people in vietnam and basically dehumanize them in the exact same way because that framework has been created Right. You don't even need to create that framework now um, Mm -hmm. because of that war. So it's just it just makes it uh, a lot more difficult. So, you know, war for an empire is a is a very uh, is a very, very key tactic uh, that is a necessity to you know maintain it. Yeah. I mean, the requirements of empire, you know, it requires a certain discipline of message, you know, abroad. Right. For the people fighting the war. But it requires similar discipline at home, which gets to another point that King sort of brings up, which he draws this connection between violence in Vietnam and violence at home. And yeah, I, I was just curious maybe how that hit your ear, Munya. Yeah, I think that, you know, with invasions of other countries and the racism that is like taught and neat and required in order to carry out those extraordinary asks of uh, of you know, the troops who are there, that doesn't just stay there, right? When people come home, they don't just switch off whatever is uh, trained or whatever happened in those countries, right? Uh, And I think that from there, like, that's the can of worms that just cannot be, like, open. So when you come back, what are the, what are the, you know, the veterans who were over there carrying out those, like, tasks um, for the U.S.? gonna do they have to reintegrate back into the society right and it's never that like you know violence abroad will just stay abroad the violence abroad is instructive for how to handle people back home too so there's kind of a two-pronged to me it's like both people coming back home from war right who have like experienced that and are trained to think of other people that way maybe join law enforcement after right maybe you're like you know in uh some other uh, sector, uh, the border control, et cetera, right? Or maybe like run for political office or, you know, or, you know, maybe just like in the community, right? All of that baggage will come back home and spread, right? That's the more like physical sense. If you like zoom out like one level though, right? Just the fact that like the US empire is carrying out these like aggressive wars abroad means that these same tactics and knowledge and technologies can come back and be used domestically too to put down uprisings there too and to actually view those uprisings in the same sense of the adversaries who were um you know getting aggressed upon right um abroad so it's like it's actually like a it's actually like a synthesis of the two because um a lot of the technology that was developed for the military during like you know uh non-war years 
can be adopted really by um, police departments, by the state, and just by how the state is organized. So now you can just like wage a war at home too, right? And put down any like what is looked at as a civil rights movement and what the certainly the state viewed as an outright war on America, which was like trying to get like black civil rights. Um, Those same tactics would be used and crucially, um, Americans are conditioned to think about it in that way too from that. So the empire racism increases when war is happening and then that racism comes back home. Um, And also that applies to the violence that happens too. That violence just doesn't stay there as well. So it's almost this like death cycle of violence uh, that happens uh, with empire as we, you know, live in the core of an empire that does expansionist wars like that. Yeah. I mean, you know, to your point, there is this technology transfer on the one hand, right. And to give a very prominent example of this is uh, tear gas, which was developed for the Vietnam war. And the purpose was, Oh, you know, Viet Cong fighters and snipers like get dug into buildings or whatever. And we want to flush them out so that we can kill them. And so they developed tear gas, right, to for this purpose. And they came up with manuals of how to deploy it and things like that. And what ultimately happened was, is while its use uh, was not particularly heavy in Vietnam, although they tried to use it quite a bit, uh, it really became a, a, war, a weapon of domestic you know, uh, war, right? Mm-hmm. And those manuals that the Defense Department drew up of how to use tear gas for assassinations and things like that just ended up in police departments where they changed the word assassinate to arrest, right? Yeah. You know, but it's now the primary tool of police departments in maintaining, you know, order, right, or suppressing domestic unrest, depending on what side of the coin you happen to be on, <laughs> on that, right? <laughs> Which, you know, is is a technical a technological transfer of war, right? And, you know, the sort of cultural thing that you're getting at, the sort of cultural ideological transfer happens as well, right? Every day, Americans were watching on TV the kill count in Vietnam, you know, where they would, generals would report how many Vietnamese they had killed that day in their war to liberate the Vietnamese, right? <laughs> in theory, right? And... That has a psychological impact on people, right? And maybe that's part of the reason why when students were murdered uh, at Kent State by, you know, National Guard soldiers, while the popular imagination or memory of that is that the country was outraged, that's not actually what happened. Huge portions of the country cheered when those students got murdered. A very popular chant was, yeah, I think it was four down or whatever, more to go. You know, Uh, they actually did rallies at the memorial services for the students, cheering the fact that the students had been murdered. Right. And demanding that more get killed. Right. That was common. You know, Uh, when civil rights leaders like Martin Luther King were killed, uh, there were people that were angry about it, certainly. But there were a lot of people who were very happy about it and pretty open with how happy they were about it. And you just it's impossible. It's not to say that America doesn't do horrifying things outside the context of war, but it's also impossible to divorce this from the context of war. No, no, exactly. And even the mass shootings now that are you know becoming almost gamified online by getting live streamed. 
uh, while people would like put a UI overhead of a kill count right there, like, you know, like it is a video game, right? And people would be cheering to get a high score, right? This is now, mm-hmm. less, that's like the modern mass shooting that's been like happening in the last like, you know, five to 10 years, like those, um, those live streams of trying to get a high score online is like what people on the internet were are like cheering for. And I think that that uh, is a direct reflection of what uh, was like very standard in the U S like, you know, in Vietnam, when we were looking at kill counts, like that's a direct derivative of that. Right. And I think that the media coverage of that was obviously like, Oh, these incels weirdos are like, you know, even like cheering for a high score kill count, like some like loony people. Right. And yes, sure. Like, you know, I don't disagree necessarily, but like um, at the same time, that's like, that was probably their parents like, watched ABC and saw the same thing. Right. And so, um, and, and that was because of a war. So, uh, if, if you live in a country that does, um, a lot of, uh, war, they, I think that that's an actual virus that gets into people's minds mm-hmm. and really would only make sense to people who have to live through basically endless wars that an empire is doing because mm-hmm. the reality is too overwhelming to really like accept the true fact about what's going on right so yeah it requires a certain devaluing of human life right and that devaluing of human life doesn't stop on the battlefield it extends to the entire society as a whole which is why i mean you know it's one of those things that you know it's always a good thing that americans don't go abroad too much but when you do talk to people from abroad uh, who've been to the united states they are genuinely shocked by how little human life is valued in this country. It's like <laughs> scandalous. Yeah. Most, like I, most people that you talk to from other countries, no matter what country they're from, are always yeah scandalized by the way people are treated here, by the just reckless disregard for the poor and things like that in this country. Um, and I mean, forget it. Usually, if you try and explain our healthcare system to people, they just don't believe you because they don't think that a human society would create something like that. It's so shocking to them that they, you know, I I have argued with uh, many a person from Europe about this, uh, including <laughs> countries like Russia and things like that that you wouldn't necessarily think, but uh, who just plain won't believe me when I explain to them how our healthcare system works. You know, <laughs> they'll believe me to yeah. a point, but like they're like that can't. No society would allow that. And it's like, yeah, maybe there's something about American society that mm-hmm. causes this to exist, right? And for people not only to allow it, but to defend it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, have, I had a, one last quote from Grandin from the section I wanted to read, and it was about the connection between, you know, the frontier mythos and a sort of destructive individualism that King cites in a essay that he wrote in 1964. And I just kind of want to get your thoughts on it, Munya. So this is from Grandin, quote, The United States, King said, was trapped in its own myth. America is a nation that worships the frontier tradition, and our heroes are those who champion justice through violent retaliation. Retribution was held up as the highest measure of American manhood. Rugged individualism, he said, was a faulty foundation for national identity, since over the years it had distracted from the fact that the government does, in fact, redistribute wealth upward. This country has socialism for the rich, King said, and individualism for the poor. What was dispensed lavishly as subsidies to one kind of people was begrudged to another as welfare. Such individualism was volatile, easily triggered. 
It led to fantasies that life was an endless game of cowboys and Indians, to alienation, social isolation, and free-floating aggression. There is, King said, an individualism that destroys the individual. Yeah, I think this is a really, really great quote. And I think when we think about King and what we're taught about King and the movies we see about King and like this side of him really, I think, is really downplayed for obvious reasons. (laughs) To say the least. (laughs) King was extremely anti-war. Um, He was someone who uh, was absolutely a socialist and someone who uh, saw the connection between capitalism as a genuine demonic system, right? (laughs) In a way, right? Like uh, capitalism as a system was counter to what he was trying to achieve with the civil rights movement. Uh, Capitalism was connected to the war in Vietnam. It was not separated from that. And I think at the root of his critique of individualism and how that's like a sickness that actually destroys oneself is that individualism is the most important thing that a capitalist system could have at its disposal, right? Individualism leads to actually, um, that's like kind of the root of how we think about race and racism, right? How we actually can be able to segregate people out through gender, race, and class, right? Is through um individual experience and and not necessarily viewing society as a collective experience right so individualism is the capitalist um you know social foundation and what individualism does is that it breaks down social bonds right and i keep on coming back to the the erosion of social bonds right um, that makes it way easier to control um, a vast swath of people, to be able to pit the working class against each other, um, to be able to not have a collective struggle, right? Because if everything is viewed in an individualist lens of what I specifically uh, you know, can get out of it or what do I get from this, right? Or why would I interact with you, right? It's always a transaction, right? It's always something that centers the self uh, and your own personal narrative while everyone else is in the periphery, right? That very nature of you being the main character and everyone else being a periphery in a way is like a tactic of dehumanizing, right? Because Mm -hmm. if you actually view people as like equals, then that means that uh, or at least like equal standing and you're not the main character and everyone is just like these side NPCs, right? Like um, then that actually means that you look at view the world as everyone having complex um, humanity and meaning like the humanity has to be shared between one another, right? And individualism erodes that completely. It, it makes it so that everyone is in this self-interested rat race in a system of capitalism that you need, that has a lot more workers than they do capitalists, right? A lot more oppressed people than there are oppressors. How do you make subclasses of those to essentially, you know, feed off of each other while not actually challenging power? And I think that individualism creates literally is the foundation of American reactionary thought. That is like where it starts and ends. Because if you build a society built on collectivist thinking, what are you even doing having a capitalist system then, right? (laughs) (laughs) Like you you just, it just, those two are incompatible. And American individualism and exceptionalism, I think, really leads to this virus that when people ask, oh, how how is it possible that, you know, uh, so many people are just like, you know, fighting one another or like, you know, uh, how are, how, how are these like, you know, 
poor white people demonizing poor black people for getting uh, federal assistance, right, when needed. Like, why is, in a modern context, why is um, affirmative action such a pressing topic right now when we're living in the most unequal society imaginable, right? Like, why is that, like, you know, the pressing issue? And really, it's like, it's an individualist, like, frame and narrative, right, that I think people um, are upholding and just living and breathing. So, it's really just the erosion of social bonds is what individualism does to people, which means if you have no social bonds, what even are you as an individual yourself? Not to get so, you know, um, philosophical here, but I mean, I think that that's really what he means when he says it destroys the individual is like, what is an individual if your social bonds around you are completely evaporated and gone? I don't, it, it, the argument could be nothing. So as you might imagine, King was pilloried in the press for his Riverside speech. 168 newspapers denounced him the next day for opposing the war in Vietnam. The New York Times called the speech Dr. King's error for his fusing of two public problems that are distinct and separate. The Chicago Tribune warned that King, quote, crossed the line and has been a hindrance to the civil rights movement since he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. San Antonio Express News chided that, quote, King is simply tragically wrong in his viewpoint and that if King and his group really want to help themselves, they can show a spirit of support now lacking that will make the impression in Hanoi that America is not greatly divided in its determination to honor the commitment in Vietnam. Life magazine went even further, calling the speech demagogic slander that sounded like a script from Radio Hanoi. In an editorial titled simply A Tragedy, <sighs> the Washington Post wrote that King, quote, has diminished his usefulness to his cause, to his country, and to his people. Abandoned by Lyndon Johnson, King became alienated from his white liberal allies and even portions of the SCLC. In short, King was in the wilderness. A tragedy. So fucking melodramatic. And like, and again, I mean, this is the difference between memory and reality, which is this idea of like, no, like the moral authority of Martin Luther King was something everybody recognized at the time and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, though, he was hated at the time, like and for decades. People afterwards, despised honestly. him. The mainstream yeah. media despised him. Like people no. were like cheering for his death. I mean, like the, mm -hmm. he was not <laughs> like this whitewashing of King now was honestly the most like repulsive, no. shocking um, modern, I, what what even is it? It's not a movement, but like um, it's just a propaganda feat, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a propaganda feat, exactly. Yeah, it's crazy, man. Tensions were high in 1968. January's Tet Offensive in Vietnam finally broke through to some people that the war in Vietnam was not winnable. Support for the war finally began to dip below 50 percent. King called for organizing a massive march on Washington to oppose the Vietnam War. Largely marginalized by this point, it is not clear the extent to which this call could have been led to any tangible result. King spent the early months of the year working on a new poor people's campaign that demanded federal funding for inner cities to deal with the housing crisis as well as an economic bill of rights that included a guaranteed annual income and housing, as well as full employment. He continued to connect American poverty to the war in Vietnam and American empire in these early months. 
King was assassinated on April 4th while in Memphis, Tennessee, to support a garbage strike. While liberals breathed a sigh of relief that King was finally gone, the cities exploded. More than 100 cities saw urban uprisings in the immediate aftermath of King's assassination. Once again, troops were diverted from Vietnam to occupy Washington, D.C., and protect the Capitol buildings and the White House. Johnson deployed more than 20,000 federal troops to cities around the country. When Mayor Daley of Chicago asked for 3,000 troops, Johnson replied, quote, better say 5,000. A Newsweek columnist wondered aloud to readers if we were witnessing, quote, some form of American fascism. Yes, just not in the way that you're thinking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Robert Kennedy, who was campaigning in Indiana at the time, made an impromptu speech in Indianapolis's Black Ghetto, where he argued, quote, um, let me be clear. There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. Yeah, we'll post the text to it. Uh, it's basically that speech. Kennedy's speech was credited with preventing rioting in Indianapolis that night. The next day, Kennedy went to Cleveland and gave a prepared speech, quote, on the mindless menace of violence, where he mm. argued that violence was apolitical and unproductive. He didn't have any comment in his speech on his brother's war in Vietnam or his own repeated initiatives to assassinate Fidel Castro. Took the L 361 times, my guy. <laughs> Two months later, Kennedy would be assassinated in Los Angeles. Fidel remained alive. In Boston, Mayor Kevin White worked with James Brown to televise his concert that night, during which White addressed the crowd. White is credited to this day with preventing violence in the city, but the reality of that night was more complicated. Within hours of King's assassination, White had deployed large numbers of police into Boston's black neighborhoods. When mourners met at a public park in Columbia Point, Boston police rode them down on horseback. Donna Haskins, who was a child at the time, described the events later. We was in Franklin Park. There used to be this uh, gazebo, and we were all standing there. It was me, my mom, my dad, and my sister. And all of a sudden, I saw a man run on the stage, and he said, Martin Luther King had just been, had just got shot. Everybody started screaming and hollering. And panic just came over my mom and my dad. And they were saying that the police are coming um, down that road with horses. And as we ran to the car and I looked back, I see them riding the horses. And my mom and dad put me and my sister in the car. And they said, whatever you do, don't look, don't look out the window. And me, as curious as always, I get up. I look out the window. I see dogs eating people. I see people getting water hose. People screaming. I had nightmares for days. For days, I had nightmares. Johnson responded to King's assassination with a law and order campaign aimed at the inner cities. He signed an omnibus crime bill in 1968 that flooded cities with federal money from war cops and more weapons. Even more importantly, it created the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration, which gave local police departments permanent access to federal funding. In January, 
Army Intelligence Officer Colonel Robert Riggs published an article in Army, the branch's official magazine, titled, quote, Made in the USA. Opening, quote, During the next few years, organized urban insurrection could explode to the extent that portions of large American cities could become scenes of destruction approaching those of Stalingrad during World War II. Riggs warned that rooftops, windows, rooms high up, streets low down, and back alleys nearby could become a virtual jungle for patrolling police or military forces at night when hidden snipers could abound, as they do often against U.S. and allied forces in Vietnam in the daylight. Echoing the counterinsurgency tactics that the military was honing in Vietnam, Riggs suggests, there are measures that offer a better solution if we are to keep our cities from becoming battlegrounds. Penetration by police intelligence, application of of military intelligence, and reliance on traditional FBI methods to prevent organized urban guerrilla violence from gathering momentum. Briggs went on to warn that, quote, Urban riot has been established as an instrument of racial rebellion, but the riots have not been strictly one of Negroes clashing with whites. Often rioters were relieving their frustrations at their ghetto surroundings and relative poverty. In the future, may even be by whites protesting against poverty and their environment. Riggs then recommended that the military begin, quote, training troops for urban insurrection, that army units must be oriented and trained to know the cement and asphalt jungle of every American city. He calls for the carrying out of large training exercises in major American cities, stating, quote, Possibly the site of such maneuvers in several cities could prove a deterrent to urban insurrection. What Riggs likely knew, but was still hidden from the lay audience, was that the military had already developed a plan, dubbed Operation Garden Plot in 1967, to occupy American cities in the case of an urban uprising. The plan was developed as part of the McCarran Internal Security Act of 1950, which authorized the detaining of dissident citizens in the case of a national emergency, essentially making Roosevelt's infamous Executive Order 9066 federal law. What Riggs might not have known is that the FBI had been maintaining a list called the ADEX of suspected dissidents, including some 110,000 people to be imprisoned upon declaration of national emergencies since at least 1934. The FBI had also already embarked on a massive counterinsurgency campaign to break up the American left, called COINTELPRO. The war was coming home. So, going through this, I, I think one of the things that is worth talking about, and we talked about a little bit in episode 18 when we discussed the global Cold War, is this relationship between state violence and left militancy, you know, or to put it another way, uh, whatever happened to nonviolence? Right? <laughs> <laughs> I've been wondering. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, you know, particularly in discussion of the civil rights movement, it's a lot of times uh, split into two periods, which is the a good peaceful period that liberals like to clap for like seals, uh, which is the early 1960s. Granted, at the time, they hated it, but you know yeah. now they've come I mean, to like it. Yeah, right. Somehow um, they came back around after the fight. <laughs> Funny how that works, right? 
Yeah, in the more violent period marked by uh, usually a younger generation of leadership and things like that of the late 1960s. And I think they pose it as a sort of moral bifurcation or generational one, as opposed to, I think, what is probably more realistic, which is it's an evolution. Yeah. I mean, like the the early 1960s and late 1960s are not that far apart. Like, it's (laughs) like... (laughs) Well, it never seems to occur to them that the violence of the late 1960s might have something to do with the state violence of the early 1960s. Yeah. You know? Uh, people getting tired of being eaten by fucking dogs getting um, their ass kicked every day like yeah. <laughs> you know <laughs> and killed i mean a significant number of people are just being fucking killed you know and they see the state will not do anything about it on all levels and in the case of police are largely participating in it yeah and i think you know it speaks to in more recent turn you know times right people who say you know, you know, regarding the protests in 2020 or the previous ones in 2014 and 2016, you know, why are these urban protests so violent? And by violent, of course, they just mean property destruction <laughs> exclusively. Yeah, yeah. But why are these urban protests around the police so violent? And it never it, to to the liberal mind, this always just happens in a vacuum. And there's never this dialectical relationship between the violence of the state and the response of the people under the state's boot to that violence, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> now, interestingly, and this is part of why Johnson hated the Kerner commission so much. Uh, the Kerner commission kind of gave that as the root cause of riots, right? It kind of snapped Loki. Yeah. The Kerner commission is a very interesting read. And these guys, I mean, these aren't like fucking Maoists or something, right? These are, you know, these were supposedly uh, very steady handed, uh, dependable libs that were being hired by the Johnson administration to essentially do a PR report. You know, it was just for a blue ribbon commission report for him to like wave around at press conferences to say that they're doing all that they can. Right. And the thing was, is that the, you know, commission honestly actually looked into things. And when they looked into it, it became pretty obvious what the problem was, which one of the things they note is every single urban uprising began with the police brutalizing somebody on the street and that you could, you know, sort of sketch out the escalation of the uprising as an escalation of the police response to people's anger at the continued violence of the police in their community, right? Uh, essentially saying, you know, as conservatives and, you know, some liberals alike argued, why are people in Seattle so mad or LA so mad when George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis, right? As if the question is really about George Floyd, right? Yeah. You know, as if it this isn't just the straw that broke the camel's back, you know? And uh, the Kerner Commission sort of pointed that out. And they also pointed out that the violence was actually pretty one sided. So here's a quote from historian Paul Gilgey regarding the uprisings in the late 1960s. He writes, black uprisings were, quote, were marked by a relative absence of violence committed by rioters against people. Careful examination of the casualty list shows that police and military inflicted the vast majority of fatalities and injuries on blacks in the riot area. And so, again, I mean, it just puts on its head the popular conception, I think, of 
violence and urban protest, right? And what it all says and means. Exactly. Again, kind of going back to our discussion on and Bevins's quote uh, at the end of the Jakarta method, uh, and you can listen to that on episode 18 and 18.5, uh, when he poses the question of who was right. Uh, and was it the people who were armed and like took a more hardline like Marxist Leninist uh, formation uh, or or like, you know, a Maoist formation and had an actual like armed uh, people's army um, a struggle or were it the people who, you know, wanted a more liberal democratic ap- approach to taking power? And we you know what was found. Uh, specifically in a lot of cases, but, you know, we'll cite what we covered in Indonesia is that um, the nonviolent movement in Indonesia and like, you know, really kind of putting a lot of chips in on, um, you know, liberal democracy or, you know, uh, nonviolent ways to take power is that the actual state and the U.S. imperialists would not allow that to happen. Right. Power is taken by force. And I think the point that we kind of made was that why would anyone who has a significant amount of wealth give it up just because uh, something on paper said that their opinion was correct? Mm -hmm. You know, like why wouldn't they just take it all the way to the end and use everything at their disposal? And I think that's why it's important to view police and as a part of the arm of the ruling class and not just a, uh, you know, uh, just a part of the government that, you know, uh, protects b- random outbreaks. Right. They're actually like almost like uh, like a hired standing occupying army uh, that's counter to what threatens uh, the ruling class. Um, and that's why they put down and really enforce a lot of property damage, right? Uh, when uh, there's property damage done or when in the quote above in this episode, when we talked about um, what was talked about even in the Harlem Flyer was like, why are police never around when there's actually, you know, violence between each other? Yet when a slumlord wants to illegally evict someone, the entire department is there. And that's because that's actually what the police are there to do and protect and serve. And so if you're trying to go against the ruling class, right, you have to come to you have to be aware that you're going against a occupying standing army. And why wouldn't the occupying standing army use the force that they are authorized to use or not authorized to use? Right. Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't they use it all the way? They're there to put down violent uprisings. And that's why I think, uh, you know, nonviolent approaches are always one-sided. They're never non-violent. It's just the people who are protesting um, are the ones usually getting beat down and without any sort of resistance, which is which is always like missed. It's not uh, it's not just that they're just allowed to do it. It's that it's still like you know an ambient threat enough where you're just unprepared. So just like the PKI in Indonesia were unprepared for the just the amount of slaughter uh, that happened, right? This inhumane slaughter. Um, similarly, you know, with like violence versus nonviolence is something that's learned both through, you know, history and war and also through like lived experience, which is why the Black Panthers were arming themselves in the late 60s, because too many of their people got murdered by an occupying army, which is the police. 
Mm-hmm. So it, it just it just makes sense, you know, that, um, you know, the idea in the push and pull between, um, you know, uprisings and whether they're violent or nonviolent, I think, missed the point. That is always violent if you're uprising against an occupying army, right? Like mm-hmm. the question is, where would the violence be inflicted to, right? Yeah. Is the violence just simply inflicted on the people who are uprising, which is usually the case if you're going against an occupying army, right? Um, the reason why I think there's so much um, outrage is that once there's an actual organized, disciplined, armed people's army um, that can actually maybe go to bat with um, you know, standing uh, police, uh, that actually does pose a threat to the ruling class, frankly. Mm. Well, and it also poses a threat to the social order generally that a lot of people benefit from. So, you know, I, I would argue that the liberal distaste for violence has very little to do with uh, moral concerns and things like that that get draped over it and a lot more to do with well, that would threaten my personal position. And their the class position and would erode. Yeah. Their class position would erode. I mean, I think or there's a at fundamental the very least level would be yeah. in question, right? And they don't want that. You yeah, know? I mean, like, it, it makes it dicey for them. And yeah. it, whether all of them consciously know it or a lot, and liberals, especially like rich white liberals, know that the police are ultimately on their side more mm-hmm. often than not, right? They're yeah. actually protecting their class standing. Um, and if that gets shaken up, who knows where they'd fall in the order, right? Yeah, and it's why liberals backed the you know Nazis in Germany, right? Like the liberals are the one who allowed Hitler to ascend to the chancellorship, <laughs> right? They're the ones who gave him the critical backing at the critical time to make sure that Nazism could take over. And the reason why they were comfortable with that, while all of a sudden the violence didn't bother them anymore, was basically who the violence was directed against, yep. and. That is always sort of the key question. And that was their discomfort with the 2022 or the 2020, uh, you know, uprisings and protests uh, all across America was, you know, when they talked about the violence that made them so uncomfortable, what they really meant was, hey, guys, uh, you're kind of infringing on the sacred rights of property, which, you know, as maybe a homeowner or whatever, uh, I would like to see actually upheld. Right. (laughs) You know, and to them, that's a higher principle than. Uh, stopping the police from murdering people because they know that the people getting murdered aren't them and they don't really care that much about the people getting murdered in anything other than a rhetorical sense they don't care about those people so the police protect their property values and murder people who aren't them who are of a lower uh, Mm -hmm. class and are you know oppressed and maybe some of them are actually oppressing them too right like it's it's if you want to draw like a binary line they would probably be on the line of the police right and what they protect yeah and, I, and it shows the conservative love affair with state violence, too, because, you know, conservatives believe in hierarchy. They believe in, you know, maintaining uh, hierarchies of income, of perceived talent, whatever, uh, at all costs. And they they understand that that's what the police do. That's why they fucking love them. That's why they yeah. all got goddamn Blue Lives Matter stickers on their fucking <laughs> cars, you know, uh, because they actually more than... Uh, you know, sort of the liberal critics of 2020, the conservatives actually see it for what it is in an interesting way. They just think it's cool. Yeah. It was like, damn, awesome. <laughs> yeah. They just like it, you know, which is its own fucking problem. Yeah. Now, that being said, I mean, I think this is an inter- interesting question of Martin Luther King's political transition to 1967 and the mm. Riverside speech. And I think, again, 
in the uh, sort of uh, hagiography of King today, right? Or the imagined, you know, history of, of King and the movement today. Uh, it's forgotten that he is, when he gives that Riverside speech, he's totally marginalized, even within the civil rights movement, right? And that happens for a variety of reasons. But he is transitioning, at least in yeah. his open political beliefs, if not just his political beliefs generally, He's transitioning from the 60, from the early 60s of uh, the March on Washington to to that speech. Um, yeah. One thing is that he's taking in the wider world. And we discussed this in our episode on the Red Scare, which I think is episode 16. There was a tacit deal that was brokered with academics in the civil rights movement that you can do what you want to do so long as you don't episode, episode 17 by the episode way episode 17 sorry yeah. just as long as you don't criticize the cold war project abroad so so long as you're <laughs> on board with the cold war project abroad you can say whatever you want you know within limits obviously at home about like uh maybe school shouldn't be segregated <laughs> yeah right <laughs> like, they'll they'll grant you that little that little uh you know cookie or whatever and, you know, I, I think King, you know, now on the left, especially uh, there's enough criticism of the Vietnam War <laughs> that maybe this doesn't seem like such a limb to go out on in 1967. But King is absolutely going out on a limb, acknowledging he's breaking that agreement and it's going to cost him. Yeah. yeah it means a lot, right? Yeah. I mean, it's going to cost him. The support, not just of, you know, he, I mean, pay, newspapers and stuff are always very critical of King, but I mean, they were willing to support him over, say, a, a Stokely Carmichael or something like that, for sure. right? <laughs> sure, sure. But it was definitely threatening that even support and then, you know, support within the movement itself of people. You know, he, he starts off the quote that we have of him talking about people ask him, like, why are you trying to combine these two things? But there was a lot of people in the SCLC that were like, if you combine Vietnam and civil rights, no matter what their own personal opinions about Vietnam were, it was a pragmatic concern of it's going to maybe hurt the civil rights movement because people are just too into the Vietnam War. So, you know, yeah. you're going to hurt the civil rights movement by combining. You hear this all the time on the left, by the way. You can't bring up Y uh, and X together because, you know, people like X, but they don't like Y. Yeah. And so therefore, <laughs> as principled leftists, we have to abandon Y. We have right? to meet you people know? where they are, meet right? Where uh, they are, the classic <laughs> statement. They love Which, massacres abroad, so we got to just, you know, let, let's not alienate people. Let's bring people into the movement, right? Yeah, or, organizing is about maintaining the status quo exactly <laughs> where it is. Not <laughs> changing people's thought processes or anything. It's just every, everything exactly as it is. People, the way they think right now, which is definitely a totally natural product and not the byproduct yeah, yeah. of fucking propaganda <laughs> and all this kind of shit uh, is definitely how you should take it. You know? But you and get just this all do, the time. Yeah, basically, just yeah, let's just do like a David Blaine magic trick where like we <laughs> trick them into thinking yes, that it's that's like... The ultimate, uh, <laughs> yes, that's the unstated uh, end part of the meet people where they are is that you're going to somehow then trick them into these beliefs <laughs> later on. And people, let me tell you, love to feel like somebody's trying to trick them yeah <laughs> you know? it builds organizing trust. genius right i <laughs> it mean builds that's... a lot of trust <laughs> um it definitely is way better than just being honest up front um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know for king i mean you know this represents a real problem but he also is living in this world right this is a churning thing that's happening under him right like the ground is moving under his feet and 
you know, he is increasingly seeing that to continue this devil's bargain with the state, right, of refusing to criticize the Cold War, all this kind of stuff, that was it was going to kill the civil rights movement. Yeah, absolutely. Ultimately, I mean, in a way, it kind of did. Right. You know, I mean, it's it's one of the reasons why the civil rights movement ultimately is going to fail um, of many uh, state violence, probably being the most prominent one. But this yep. is one of the reasons, right, is the ideological battle of the sort of liberal wing of it, which is, hey, let's not rock the boat too much. Let's just push for this little reforms here and there. They ultimately went out. I mean, mainly because the radicals get killed or imprisoned. But, yeah, right. I mean, like, which the, is why it, you do that, by the way, if you're the state. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I mean, it's, it's not the. It's very key, I think, for the state to get rid of you know radical uh, people who are connecting those two, right? Because it actually yeah. does pose a huge threat to the state in many ways. If you're like tying domestic social movements with historically and like you know currently oppressed and marginalized people like black people in America with the war that's happening in Vietnam um, to separate that is, 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 and say, let's just advocate for this like domestic issue without like looking at the broader structures that are creating it, nor shall we like, you know, talk about what uh, people are uh, fervently uh, backing, which is the Vietnam war. Right. We mm. can't like kind of connect those two. And like, it's almost like a sideshow in a way uh, for like the ruling class to be like, Oh yeah, well you just do your little thing there. Advocate for, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, as like the movement got a lot more radical, it actually became more of a movement against the American empire at large. And the American mm-hmm. empire was enforcing both abroad and at home. And what was happening with, you know, the uh, black civil rights movement was um, it was being seen as not just like a, a race issue, right. Which it absolutely mm-hmm. was. But it was seen as a actual war, a class war against oppressed people and those people uh, in America that happens to be black people in America, right? Yeah. Who are like, you know, historically very marginalized and the subjects of violence against uh, police brutality, right? So that, I think all of that shows that to get rid of uh, and basically and assassinate a lot of leaders who were like actually really making that strong and then and crucially not just making the point but then organizing for action against that with people buying into the analysis of oh yes these are this is actually uh, an imperial war internally right domestically while um an imperial war is happening uh, on the outside and these two things are connected i can do real damage uh to the state um if they're not careful right that's like mm-hmm. a really the the glass is kind of like, you know, broken at that point. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. And we'll talk about this next week uh, when we talk about COINTELPRO and things like that. But, uh, you know, the radicalization of the civil rights movement and sections of the anti-war movement stuff in the United States is directly tied to the internationalization of it as well. You know, once you start hearing civil rights leaders talking about uh, Vietnam and Ho Chi Minh and uh, Mao, start quoting Mao at each other, you realize we've reached another level in this movement. And the thing is, is, you know, as we'll have, you know, uh, some of the leadership of the Black Panther Party quotes from them, is that looking at the situation of people in Vietnam, the situation of people in China, and they're not seeing a foreign other there to be killed. The faceless sludge, right, as described, you know, uh, for how, how it became so easy to kill, you know, people in Asia. Uh, they're seeing themselves. 
And when they look at the violence the United States is, you know, wreaking in those countries, they're seeing the violence that's being brought on themselves. And that sort of radical internationalism is reshaping the movement at the time. Now, this gets us to, you know, the interesting and sort of stickier question of MLK's current legacy. Uh, you know, Martin Luther King is as close as America has to a modern saint, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yes. At this point, right? And as such, you know, you would think his life would be under a certain amount of scrutiny, uh, except for the fact that outside of maybe three lines and one speech that he gave in the early 1960s, uh, I would say that most Americans seem to not have a keen grasp of the man's actual thoughts, ideas, or politics. <laughs> yeah, definitely not. <laughs> um, not even the stuff just buried in his diaries, but the things that he just said. And... The things that he officially said and had a lot of mainstream media attention for, mm-hmm. right? It wasn't just like, it's not just like we're doing the underground deep cut B-sides of King, right? These were yeah. very much the hits uh, at the time. Yeah, the Riverside speech is, you know, a really important speech, and it was known to be a really important speech at the time. Uh, There was a lot of anticipation leading up to it. It had already been leaked by King what he was going to talk about. Uh, Stokely Carmichael, now Kwame Ture, uh, described later in life that, you know, getting a phone call from King, and Carmichael at this time is is the head of SNCC, getting a phone call call from King asked him, like, hey, I'm going to be speaking at this church you should come in New York. Like, you're in town, you should come. And Carmichael was like, you know, look, I've been to fucking church. I don't need to be fucking preached at, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Expecting that he's about to get another lecture from, from King, right? Which he had before, certainly. And uh, King tells him, no, I'm going to come out against the Vietnam War at this speech. And, you know, and Carmichael's remembering, he's basically like, you know, I turn around a dime, it's like, I'm going to be there in the front row. You know, and, you know, so this was a widely anticipated speech, you know, when it came out, it was huge news. You know, uh, it wasn't denounced in, you know, almost 200 newspapers for no reason. (laughs) Like, you know, the newspapers (laughs) wouldn't be denouncing it if people weren't talking about it. Right. All this kind of stuff. Yet is in what his last major act in a lot of ways. Um, And it's completely memory hold at this point. Yeah. I, I I think Grandin somewhat implies too that that's when the actual interest of assassination really came from was when he was connecting those two, which is I think something that might get missed a little bit. And not just yeah. and I'm not gonna like say that oh this is a reason or this is not of there's so there that's I don't want to be that reductive, but I mean I think that's something that's not even like uh, considered as a factor in the assassination of Dr. King. Um, mm-hmm. I think when he was assassinated, it was more like, oh, well, it's just because he was like the leader of the civil rights movement, which is true. But I think it's also very timely that when he started connecting um, both imperial wars abroad, especially Vietnam, and uh, what was happening at home, is that that's when actual, you know, the bar- the bargain with the state kind of went away and he they suddenly turned on him and assassinated him, right? Like, yeah, and I mean it's it's worth noting that he was preparing, you know, the the Memphis strike that he went to was a detour from what he had been doing which was preparing this anti-war civil rights march on Washington. He was connecting the poor people's campaign to the war, to the demonic suction tube, right? And hey, I I guess uh good for the uh people in Washington, you know, he wasn't around to lead it. 
Yep. Very convenient for them. Yeah. You know, I'm sure that has nothing to do with the fact that like Memphis police's detail that was following King the entire time he was in Memphis uh, stopped following him and went back to the station one hour before he was killed mysteriously. <laughs> and nobody can explain why. You know? <laughs> like, I mean, whatever. Right. I want to get into the like, you know, ins and outs of King's assassination. But, you know, I mean, at some point, <laughs> these very convenient things happening. <laughs> you know what what do you make of it right yeah and you know i mean that's the other part of the legacy is the assassination itself what did it mean what you know happened afterwards what was people's interpretation which was pretty much universally that you know this was some sort of fucking conspiracy to kill the man um you know uh it's left out right and so what we have is what actually happens with saints in the catholic church is a totally whitewashed legacy, right? Uh, that's more fantasy than reality. It's uh, it's the most effective propaganda campaign, uh, possibly at least visibly in, in like the history of America. You know, I think that if you're talking about a propaganda campaign based around one person and their achievements, and what's universally known vers- of that person who is American versus what they actually were and what they stood for is you it couldn't be further uh apart right it's almost like Mm -hmm. i yeah i i even think about how then maybe when people do hear about dr king right and this kind of gets into the meta of it and you know are like oh this guy was just so lame for just being like a sellout and being just nonviolent, right like it even like makes people even think like it makes people you know what like liberals believe that this guy was just like you know awesome and this is like the model of how you how these like hooligans should behave right like and man Mm -hmm. of decency Uh, but then also i think it also affects like people who might be uh you know learning about this stuff and might reject the uh you know liberal preachiness of uh you know how he was a man of honor who only like you know marched to get what he wanted and like brokered deals right um, that's not true either. And I think that that also turns like opinion against him in a way that's like mis- misguided as well. Like um, not many people know that like MLK was a straight up socialist. Right. And that actually um, had very detailed critiques of capitalism, something that, of course, like the corporate news and um, the ruling class of America would not uh, like at all or want to celebrate. So to turn Dr. King and to have now like conservatives here um you know today cite him as like what people should be doing um is just like i mean imagine showing someone uh that in like 1967 or 1968 like imagine showing how what dr king's legacy um is today i don't know it's crazy Mm -hmm. yeah and i you know interestingly you know, by the time of the 1980s, when it was decided at you know, whatever level of leadership that uh, they were going to try and do this PR turn to make the man into this saint, right, that uh, represents the uh, total adherence to nonviolence, the sum total of all political strategy <laughs> in America, right? Also extremely convenient, interestingly, um, that. Uh, in 1983, when there was the national vote to commemorate, you know, Martin Luther King Day, that another sort of uh, modern liberal saint, John McCain, voted against it. Right. <laughs> and that there was a lot of 
you know, there was a lot of pressure at the time to vote against it. Uh, you know, I remember from my childhood, this would have been in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, people saying stuff. And this is, you know, just insane when it hits your ears. This will be fun for you, Moon. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> just remember what it was like not that long ago. Uh, you know, if black people can have Mar uh, Martin Luther King Day, then how come white people don't get a Adolf Hitler holiday, <laughs> which is like a hilarious combination of like ideas. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, I that's mean, uh, you know, when you give up the, the game. Yeah, <laughs> you kinda, it's a confession, but, but all right. But there was a lot of pushback against it. I mean, the man was still pretty hated even into the eighties, and it's been a slow churn to like turn him into this modern saint and it's basically been through the total whitewashing of his politics and his life to the point that now amongst conservatives you know mlk and the uh the only speech that any the i have a dream speech the only speech that anybody fucking knows right uh that speech specifically is used by conservatives today to uphold american rugged individualism right yep this idea of like yeah you know uh no, nobody should be judged by their you know color or whatever the color of the skin right <laughs> so it's like yeah he's just saying everybody needs to be judged on their individual merits yeah and our meritocracy <laughs> of a society which i think grandin is argued and we are arguing is not what king's idea was <laughs> behind such speeches. not at all <laughs> Thanks. but this is now the totally common conservative interpretation that you can read in endless editorials every mlk day about how king was the true conservative yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right so again we want to bring you some of the actual voices of the time period in this clip from 1967, Stokely Carmichael, or Kwame Torre now, speaking to an assembled crowd of students, explained his disagreement with Martin Luther King on the issue of nonviolence. Now, let us begin with the modern period of, I guess we could start with 1956 for our generation. This was the beginning of the rise of Dr. Martin Luther King. Dr. King decided that in Montgomery, Alabama, black people had to pay the same prices on the buses as did white people, but we had to sit in the back. And we could only sit in the back if every available seat was taken by a white person. If a white person was standing, a black person could not sit. So Dr. King and his associates got together and said, this is inhuman. We will boycott your bus system. Now understand what a boycott is. A boycott is a passive act. It is the most passive political act that anyone can commit, a boycott. Because what the boycott was doing was simply saying, we will not ride your buses. No sort of antagonism. He was not even verbally violent. He was peaceful. Dr. King's policy was that nonviolence would achieve the gains for black people in the United States. His major assumption was that if you are nonviolent, if you suffer, your opponent will see your suffering and will be moved to change his heart. That's very good. He only made one fallacious assumption. In order for nonviolence to work, your opponent must have a conscience. The United States has none. Has none. 
time, get rid of this abusive uh, government. dicen que siempre podrán saltar el muro por muy alto que sea. Ellos junto a activistas aseguran que la valla es el peor legado de la administración Trump y que no ha disminuido los cruces de la Space, space, space.